0: It's hot as a horse's ass in fly time here, and I don't like the heat. We're awaiting further instructions. We want to get out of this goddamn valley. Over. Patience is the chief virtue of those who have faith. Mahatma Gandhi, New Delhi, 1946. Up your ass, Lieutenant Mike London. Shit creek. The year is now.
1: For Mac and the Movies, where I look at everything from art house to grindhouse, mainstream to obscure, the forgotten, and the unforgettable. I've made some changes to the content I'm going to cover for the month of November, which is our turkey month. We're going to be taking a look at some great bad movies from noted filmmakers. Originally, I was going to cover Uwe Boll, then for Thanksgiving, I was going to review 10 films spotlighted on the bottom 50 rated films on the Internet Movie Database. In the world of professional wrestling, I believe the proper phrase is card subject to change. I'm pulling a Wurzel and switching up the subjects for the month. Instead, today I'll be looking at select films from the bizarre filmography of Bruno Mattei. The films on the docket are Private House of the SS, Hell of the Living Dead, The Other Hell, and Strike Commando. Plus, there will be a three tenors on our favorite monsters that will be on after the reviews. Then, for Thanksgiving, I'll upload a special 10-film review for Uwe Boll. Five good films and five bad films, plus another three tenors. Before we dig into some of Mattai's films, let's take a look at the man himself. He was born on July 30th, 1931. Bruno Mattai grew up in Rome, Italy. His father owned an editing studio, so he was exposed to film for most of his youth. He graduated from film school in 1951. During this time as a screenwriter, he claimed to have worked on over a hundred films, a fact that has been proven to be difficult to verify. Also taking into account the man has at least 22 pseudonyms to his filmography, with many more likely unaccounted for. His first films as a feature director were Amidia, Il Drama de Una Esposa, that was in 1970, and Cuginetta, Amore Mio, in 1975. Both are lost films because... There was no footage available, or they were poorly preserved. Matai's earliest surviving film was 1977's Private House of the SS. <laughs> Schellenberg has been assigned by the Third Reich to weed out possible saboteurs who aim to take out the Fuhrer. At his disposal is a hardened group of prostitutes who will expose those targeted suspects in more ways than one. All the more game for such a task is the Madame of the brothel, Eva. Hans is successful in taking out various associates and higher-ups in the Reich. However, Schellenberg eventually becomes so delusional about his task, he begins to see himself as worthy of becoming the Fuhrer, so much so that he becomes the very target he was assigned to eliminate. Private House of the SS, aka SS Girls, may not mark the only time Matai dabbled in Nazi exploitation, but it's the more watchable. We previously looked at Women's Camp 119 way back in episode 4 of the podcast, which was part one of my look at volume one of The Grindhouse Experience. SS Girls has a titillation and lightness about it, despite the subject matter. The film makes the Nazis look like deviant fools in a propagandic manner, not unlike the depiction of the Nazis in The Invisible Agent. The animosity shouldn't be a surprise given the Nazi occupation of Italy near the end of World War II, which Mattai was exposed to for most of his youth. SS Girls would provide a preview of Matai's filming signature. Matai's films would come out in the wake of the success of another film, which was actually a common practice for the Italian film industry. Matai is not above ripping off themes or even direct scenes from films, as you'll see as this episode continues. SS Girls came out about as Matai's spin on the infamous Tinto Brass film Salon Kitty, which itself was capitalizing on the success of The Night Porter. In Salon Kitty, the protagonist aims to use prostitutes to blackmail the Third Reich. Matai slightly tweaked the plot and switched the objective to exposing enemies within the Nazi state. And then, surprise, you have Private House of the SS. The film fetishizes the Nazis. Uh, There is no shortage of questionable scenes. One scene implies bestiality with a woman in bed with a German shepherd. Another woman beds a man with physical deformity. Italian actor Thomas Rudy is tried to be passed off as a Japanese soldier. The papal imagery will raise a lot of eyebrows. If you're easily offended, this movie clearly isn't for you. The music score by Gianni Marchetti is a mix. Some pieces resemble a bouncy waltz, uh, like you heard at the beginning of this review. Another piece is a simple, sax-centric jazz track. Carrera, as Schellenberg, steals the film in a very Crispin Glover manner. In fact, he was Crispin Glover before Crispin Glover. He goes so far over the top but is infinitely entertaining, you can't take your eyes off of him. He has such a strong presence, you'll too easily notice the void left in the film for the last 20 minutes when he's out of the picture. Macha Magal plays Madame Eva. Magal is no stranger to Nazi exploitation. She also appeared in the infamous Beast in Heat. Another shared cast member between SS Girls and Beast in Heat is Salvatore Baccaro, who plays a horny short man during the training montage. Luciana Pagosi plays Professor Jurgen, who oversees the women in their training. You'll hear him come up a lot in this episode. When it comes to non-Matai films, he was in Your Hunter from the Future. For being the earliest surviving film in Matai's catalog, this is not recommended for those in the shadow end of his filmography. I would go through some of the other films in this episode before watching Private House of the SS. On its own, it is a bizarre tongue-in-cheek film that is better than the genre associated with it would have you believe. (laughs) establishing shots of one of the many Hope Centers scattered through third-world countries. Machines are lighting up and people in hazmat suits are checking checking the piping. Suddenly, a worker is attacked by a rat and soon the chemicals in the pipes leak out. The chemical turns the facility workers into flesh-eating zombies. Cut to a police standoff with four members of an elite SWAT team led by Lt. Mike London. They enter an embassy to defuse a hostage situation. The hostage takers demand for the dismantling of the Hope Centers. Swiftly, the team cuts through the band of terrorists. Before dying, the terrorist leader warns that people will die and they will eat each other. The team travels to New Guinea on a secret assignment. The destination is known only to London. Making matters complicated, they pick up a news reporter and her cameraman, who are investigating the numerous deaths plaguing the tribal areas. Hell of the Living Dead is essentially a Mad Magazine version of George Romero's Dawn of the Dead. From the attire of the SWAT members and the use of Goblin's music from Dawn of the Dead, Matai took bits and pieces from Romero's Romero's film for his own comedic uses. The character of Santoro goes through a similar mental breakdown as Roger. The light moments of the film were from Matai and Claudio Fergasso, but the producers wanted a dark, grim final film. Matai was against this, but Matai compromised, mixing the light with the dower, which explains the nihilistic ending to a comically absurd film. Matai also adds in a little bit of Heart of Darkness, or, at the time of the production, Apocalypse Now. Instead of Colonel Kurtz, the squad is going down a trail to find the Hope Center, or maybe I'm just looking too deeply into this film. In addition to Goblin's score for Dawn of the Dead*, Mattai also uses the band's music for *Contamination* and *Beyond the Darkness*. Tracks like *Connection*, *Quiet Drops*, and *Zombie* are put to fine use, but they are clearly removed from their original contexts. I went into detail regarding the controversy of Mattai using Goblin's music in Episode Nine of the podcast. Despite the absence of music from films like Deep Red and Suspiria, the track selections are undoubtedly impeccable. There's also some non-goblin tracks used for the film score. From what I can find, the music is from the Luis Bakalov score for Blood and Diamonds, a 1978 Eurocrime thriller starring Martin Balsam. I found a copy to buy and I will report back ASAP to confirm. While primarily shot in Spain, stock footage was used to add to the illusion of these characters being in New Guinea. Some of the stock footage might be too disgusting for people to watch. The footage comes from Barbette Schroeder's The Valley. Yet, I find it hard to believe that there would be a suburban house located in New Guinea. This breaks what little immersion can be found in favor of low-budget kish. But that adds to the fun of watching Hell of the Living Dead. For being viewed by many as a terrible movie, it's not without its charm. In a supplemental interview, Mattai mentioned that he made his movies the same way a cartoonist would, to be entertaining. On that front, Matai more than succeeds. The script was co-written by Claudio Fragasso. Fragasso would earn notoriety of his own, thanks to cult classics like Troll 2 and Monster Dog, starring Alice Cooper. Franco Garofalo is the standout of the cast playing Zantoro. The scene where he offers himself to the zombies like a chicken dinner is a sight to behold. Joseph Luis Fanol has his moment to shine when he puts on a green tutu and prances around, only to be eaten by zombies in that humiliating circumstance. Anyone expecting the socioeconomic satire from Dawn of the Dead will be disappointed by the simplicity of Matai's film. It does what it needed to, amuse people for an hour and a half with gore, laughs, and a great soundscape. Centers on an abbot where a number of bizarre incidents have occurred. Father Valerio is sent in to investigate. At the center of these phenomena is a murder and hysteria whipped up by Mother Vincenza. Is the devil really responsible for the goings on at the abbot, or is there something more sinister occurring? Valerio comes up as level headed, even a little bemused that these people think the devil is actually involved. The people who seem to know what's happening aren't speaking, most notably the groundskeeper. The more Valero digs into the depths of the abyss carnivorous underbelly, the closer he gets to what's really going on. When you're watching a Bruno Matai film, either bury your expectations or throw them right out the window. You can expect over-the-top acting, a fair amount of gore, and the blatant quote-unquote borrowing of Goblin Tracks. Here, Matai takes visuals and scenes from supernatural films like The Exorcist, Patrick, and The Omen. Matai also adds to the risque appeal by capitalizing on the non-sploitation subgenre that is still taboo. There are some scenes of gore, including one early on that showcases an unusual autopsy. It involves the disemboweling and removal of a female's reproductive organs, which oddly enough look like salami. Other moments of gore include your basic stabbing. Not much else to speak of, especially compared to Hell of the Living Dead. For the other Hell, Matai uses pieces of the band's music from Buyo Omega, tracks from their Roller non-soundtrack album, and their score for the Australian thriller Patrick. In a supplemental interview for the Shriek Show DVD, Matai Kling Goblin actually went into the studio to adapt their tracks to his film. This is a blatant lie considering Goblin never approved of their use of their music in Matai's films, and permission to use their music was through producer Carlo Bixio. Carlo de Mejo is a pleasure to watch as the cynical investigator. Despite the nature of the film and being the male lead, he's having fun and making the most out of very little the script has given him. His performance here is not too far off from his turn in Lucio Fulci's City of the Living Dead. Not only does Matai borrow music from Buyo Omega, but he also casts actress Franca Stapi as the female lead. She serves as a great antagonist for Demejo to work off of, providing a contrast to Demejo's performance. Her eyes can freeze you with a piercing stare. Franco Garofalo was a treat to see in Hell of the Living Dead, but tones down his wily mannerisms and is only peripheral in his role as the groundskeeper. It's a shame to see an actor capable of putting life into a movie only to be asked to do the bare minimum. The Other Hell is a film that is best saved for later. The themes and the pacing may be too much for some and only for hardened veterans of Matai. Still, the use of Goblin's music as well as the performances by DeMejo and Stappi make this a decent viewing. <laughs> Sergeant Mike Ransom is leading a small squad of soldiers through a covert mission, rigging explosives at a Viet Cong compound. Unfortunately, Colonel Raddick detonates the explosives prematurely. Ransom and the others are assumed dead. Ransom actually fell into a river and drifted to a pro-U.S. village. While recovering, Ransom is befriended by the villagers. A young boy asks Ransom about living in the U.S. Ransom makes his way back to base, but the army can't grant protection to the village that saved him. When he returns, he finds the villagers all killed and finds out that Raddock is a Soviet spy. The previous two paragraphs make up all the plot there is to be found in Strike Commando. Despite this film being a knockoff of mid-80s action films like Commando and Rambo, it is a very entertaining film to watch. Dare I say it is a pitch-perfect parody of the action genre, whether or not that was Matai's intentions. Matai took an already ridiculous genre and turned it up to 11. Despite being a parody, there are a few moments that are on the edgy side. The shots of the dead villagers took me aback, a dramatic change in tone compared to the rest of the film. There's also a sequence where Ransom is imprisoned and part of his interrogation is being stuck in a cell with the dead body of another prisoner. It's pretty gruesome in the context of the whole film. Joining Mattia in this insane theatrical venture is his frequent partner in cinematic crime, Claudio Fragasso. Much like with Hell of the Living Dead, Mattai and Fragrasso aren't above outright stealing scenes from other films. Mad Max 2 The Road Warrior immediately comes to mind in a scene where Ransom wakes up to villagers wearing white face paint. But the duo of Mattai and Fragrasso managed to make an action movie satire ahead of its time. Red Brown may be recognized by different audiences. He was the 1970s Captain America... He was the male lead in the MST3K classic Space Mutiny, where he went by many names.
0: Slab, bulkhead. Fridge, large meat. Hunt speed chunk.
1: Butch, deadlift.
0: <laughs> Bold, big flank. Splint, chest hair. Flint, iron stag.
1: Bolt, Vanderhuge.
0: <laughs> Thick, McRunfast. <laughs> we put our faith in blast, hard cheese.
1: His performance as Ransom is the highlight of this film. The one scene with Ransom giving comfort to a dying child shows that Brown was in on the joke and knew exactly what Matai was aiming for. Tell me about Disneyland. They so got tons of
0: popcorn there. Yeah. And all you gotta do is go climb a tree to go eat it. <laughs> and there's cotton candy. Mountains of it. Uh, and chocolate milk. Involved.
1: There are moments where Christopher Connolly comes off as giving a paycheck performance, but Connolly puts in a modest effort as the main antagonist. His lack of charisma makes for a welcome contrast to the overtop performance by Brown. Luciano Pagosi makes another appearance here as a French missionary, yet many mistook him for a, a Western prospector. Strike Commando may be the best film to show to people who are new to Bruno Mattai, The action film preposterousness and laughable satirization can be enjoyed by all. Even with a few somber moments, the film quickly reverts back to humor. Well worth a watch. And now for another installment of The Three Tenors. I'm viso, in bianco e in a riso, and I'm
0: so near.
1: joined here by my good friend as always John Cleveland. Hi everybody. Uh, this is going to be another installment of the three tenors. Uh, for this installment we're going to be looking at uh, Mr. Hill's list for top ten monsters. Uh, so we're going to go ahead and first go through uh, Mr. Hill's list and then followed by John's list and then we'll close out with my list. Uh, mm-hmm. Let's go ahead and see what Mr. Hill has for his top ten monsters. Uh, number ten the Kraken from Clash of the Titans.
0: One of the best uh I would say Kaiju, I guess, or
1: at least one of the earliest. Yeah, and it's Ray Harryhausen, so. so you can't yeah. go wrong. Oh, no. No. All right, number nine, The Crab Boys <laughs> from uh, Tremors, which, yes. it's it's just such a wonderful movie, and so is. it's a nice twist on, like, the 50s monster movie. Yes, mm-hmm. yes,
0: heavily inspired
1: by films mm-hmm. like Them and other radioactive oh, yeah. beasts. Uh, number eight, the Gremlins, which they're they're too iconic not to have on a list, I would say. Yeah, I mean they're
0: they're not on mine, I will I will say that, but they definitely are great monsters. Their life cycle's very interesting. We mm-hmm. learn about how that works even if it doesn't yep. quite make a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Uh which is poked fun at in the second movie. But yeah, no, they're definitely iconic monsters. Yeah. Uh
1: number seven, the crawling eye from the Trollenberg Terror. Yeah. I haven't seen this one. Yeah, um, so it's um, not good.
0: <laughs> uh, I uh, I think it was covered by Mystery Science Theater. I'll put it that way.
1: Yeah, I remember seeing the crawling eye. Um, yeah, yeah. Um,
0: It's. I will say this. It is. I remember watching it uh, as an episode of Mystery Science Theater and thinking, you know what? A little bit more money, and this could have been a good film. Um, it is an interesting film. It's obviously they're they're aliens. Spoilers. Um, so it, that explains everything, and we don't need to talk about it anymore kind of issues. Uh, they're also telekinetic, just to one person, and that's plot relevant. So, again, it's that creeping thing about the 1950s not caring so much about yeah. detail work. But um, they're interesting, and they're very iconic. They're giant crawling eyes with tendrils. I mean, I can think of a good line to write as a monster, and that is a good start, you yeah. know? So.
1: All right, number six, Clover, a.k.a. L.S.A. from
0: Cloverfield. Yes, another more modern kaiju. Uh, Very interesting and a new take on it. Uh, That movie entirely for me was the viral marketing. I I know a lot of people don't like it because of the shaky cam aspect. Yeah. So um, I didn't care so much about that. It's not really something that bothers me that much. For me, I think this movie was made by its marketing, which is sad because it means it will never... It, I can't explain that to others. Like, you had to kind of live it. It's not like the Blair Witch project. Oh, yeah, exactly. You just had to understand what was going
1: on to really to make it work. But a very interesting and very unorthodox monster. Yeah. All right, number five, the giant trolls from probably my favorite found footage film, Troll Hunter.
0: It is a very good uh, found <laughs> footage. I love showing it to people because a lot of people still haven't seen it. And they're like, oh, my God, this is good. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, it really is. It never takes itself too seriously. It has a very good mythos. Great special effects for the, for its time, mm-hmm. well for, for the its budget, budget too. really, yeah. Uh, but no, good, good, solid film.
1: All right, number four, Kong from King Kong. No
0: argument to be no. had. It's no. so he, so. I he's so iconic. I don't I don't remember if he's on my list or not because it was just like I don't need to state this. Yeah, he's this kind is, of like one of those that go without saying. Yeah, you don't need to talk about this. Yeah. He's, like there are several people I know who consider King Kong the greatest film ever mm-hmm. made and then you've got
1: Kong Skull Island which was better than it probably had any right to be it doesn't need the first hour
0: of the film <laughs> and, uh, but yes because it's Peter Jackson's way but, uh, but yeah no it definitely was better than it had
1: any right mm-hmm. to be Uh, Number three, The Brundle Fly from David Cronenberg's The Fly. Nobody does
0: body horror like uh, Cronenberg. It just, he doesn't. And that film.
1: And you got Jeff Goldblum. (laughs) Made made
0: him famous. Yeah. If you watch any of the films before that, he's just trying to be a normal actor. After that, he is Jeff Goldblum. Mm -hmm. Um, So good. It's one of those that holds up today. I will watch that film around Halloween. I watch watch The Fly every year. It's so good. It doesn't get worse. Mm -hmm. So good.
1: Uh, number two, The King of the Monsters, Godzilla.
0: Yep. Gojira. Yep. From the original. You, it, He's another one where I, I... He's on my list because I couldn't not yeah. write him. But, like, you, you don't even need to say it. Like, it's so iconic. How many 30-some films in that series at this point? Oh, yeah, he's, like, the biggest... Like, Guinness has him as, like, the biggest franchise of all time. Yeah. Like, take that, Marvel. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, like, it's just one of those things where it's just, like, he is so iconic... Like, I remember my nephew going, like, it was hard. I had to explain to my five-year-old nephew that Godzilla didn't actually exist. Mm -hmm. Because he had, you know, it was a cartoon show for a while.
1: Movies. I remember Marvel Comics did a series where it was the Avengers fought Godzilla. Yeah, I don't think they won. (laughs) And last but not least, uh, the monster, Frankenstein's monster, portrayed by Boris Karloff. I do have to raise an issue. The picture in the book is Glenn Strange as Frankenstein's monster, not uh, Boris Karloff. <laughs> that is a,
0: not a good Frankenstein's monster. No, uh, Frankenstein again, so iconic. I don't yeah. even know if you
1: need to say no, it. It. it's like when you think of Frankenstein, you think of that square-headed yep, Universal the monster. Everything yep. so
0: good. The man-made monster. It's the classic. Yep. Is you uh, you you realize that Frankenstein isn't the monster. Doctor Frankenstein, Frankenstein is. is the monster. Yes. Yep. It's just so iconic. It's he's he is the greatest.
1: All right, moving on to our list, John. You can go ahead and get us started. Okay. Now I skew more for creatures. Yeah.
0: Uh, That's just me uh, on how I do. So you're not going to hear a lot of man uh, per se, but there are some. So with that, actually, uh, it's the werewolves from the film Dog Soldiers, Mm. filmed in two thousand and two. I honestly believe this is the best werewolf movie ever made. Now, I am willing to admit it doesn't flush out the werewolf mythos. It does assume you just kind of know what werewolves are or um, are accepting of what you don't are told because you already know it. But it's so good. Set in the highlands of Scotland, uh, a military unit against werewolves. I don't need to t- say anymore. It's just good. Um, the, the look of them is so interesting. They're tall. They're more gaunt than the normal werewolf. It's, it's really, really cool. All right. Number nine, and this is one I'm genuinely surprised isn't on his list. Jaws. Mm. Uh, the shark uh, in Jaws. Yeah. Uh, it's so, again, another movie I've watched a hundred times. The scene in the boat where they're singing, talking about the, the, the ship, uh, the USS Indianapolis, arguably one of the greatest scenes ever shot by, on film. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's so good. Every aspect of that film is good. Only how many years? Fifty years after it was made, can we look back and go? There are times I can kind of tell a werewolf is just, or the uh, the shark is just a, a robot. Yeah. yeah, it's a fifty-year-old film. Yeah, I think yeah. we're fine. Yeah. So, and the, the the crazy part is, is it was edited down to get to theaters. There are scenes in that movie I have seen. I have an extended cut where, and I'm not going to go into all the details, but basically, it extrapolates on a scene, and there. There is a lot more going on that we don't see. The psychological terror of the shark is really impactful in those scenes. It was edited down. If you haven't get a chance, I highly suggest watching it.
1: And it, it's one of those creatures that work best the less you see of it.
0: Yes, yes. It really worked out that they robot kept breaking so they couldn't yeah. kill it. <laughs> Spielberg, man, is making making the greatest. He can make a truck scary. He did make a truck scary. <laughs> All right, uh, eight. Uh, the crawlers from the film Descent, *The Descent* from 2005. Um, people who basically humanity went out of caves and started living. Some humans stayed in caves and kept evolving cave-like features. People come across them. It doesn't work out well. <laughs> um, such a good underrated film. Every aspect is great, and the crawl, the crawlers, the creatures are so weird. They're humans with like pale skin. They are blind, they use echolocation. It's great. It's just a great film.
1: They remind me a lot of the uh, Dwemer from Skyrim.
0: Yes, actually, I've heard before that one of the artists who designed the Dwemer was inspired to some degree mm-hmm. by them. Now, I don't know if that's true, but it's interesting.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, seven, and another one that I'm very surprised wasn't on his list, the Xenomorphs from Alien.
1: Oof. H.R.
0: Geiger, just a
1: classic creature. Oh,
0: so good. Again, like the Gremlins, where they talk about their whole life cycle. Their life cycle is the part about them that makes them more than just big, evil-looking alien space Mm -hmm. creature things. They have acid for blood. Like, who would have thought of that? That's so good. Mm -hmm. Uh, Such a great film. So iconic that I, again, it's one of those where I am generally surprised when it's not on someone's list. Oh,
1: yeah, and it's like even then, throughout its different stages, the chestburster. Yeah, in itself, the chestburster would have been... (laughs) It's own
0: movie. You could have done a film where it's just the burster. All it does is kill you when it bursts out of your chest and it becomes a chestburster and runs off. That would be its own film. Nope, just one life point in this creature. Yeah. And then the sequel making it like, oh, wait, there's a queen. So yeah. It's so good. All right, number six, The Blob. Mm. Now, I like the 1988 film more than the original yeah. because the update in special effects was there.
1: Yeah,
0: They're both great, but like just that concept, it's this giant... Slime that just consumes everything it comes across, and there's nothing you can do to physically harm it. It doesn't take damage. Like, oh, you know, you love guns? Cool. Ain't gonna help you. It's so interesting because it's so dangerous because it's so simple. It doesn't need all these flashy things. It's not hiding, it's coming right at you. And just
1: the shadow of the people being dissolved inside of it is so good. It's
0: (laughs) so good. Oh. So good. I might watch that tonight now. I really <laughs> want it. All right, number five. This has always been a personal favorite of mine, and I don't think it gets nearly enough love. Pumpkinhead, mm. uh, nineteen again, nineteen eighty-eight. Such a good year for horror. Yeah. Um, it's just it's a it's a fantastic creature. It's a demon or uh, an entity summoned for revenge. Uh, does it's called Pumpkinhead? To be honest with you, I think that it might have lost people on the on the name because <laughs> what's a pumpkin head yeah. I don't know. But, like, uh, it's just, it's a great film. Lance Henderson is awesome in it, and the creature is just very Xenomorph-esque in its, in its yeah, look. Yeah,
1: it uh, Stan Winston was involved with this. Stan Winston yeah. not
0: only designed, it's the only film Stan Winston directed. All right. Yeah, it's so good. Um, very, very interesting, and it plays with the whole religious angle a bit, too, because, again, it's a spirit of vengeance. All right, uh, number four, the splinter creatures, which are unnamed, in the film, Splinter, from 2008. Um, it's a very like lesser known horror film. You pretty much have to be a diehard horror fan to have heard about it, because it just hasn't had a wide release or anything like that. Functionally what it is, is it's a parasitic creature that takes the form of like spiky growths, and when it pricks you or gets into your bloodstream, it likes heat. That's all it cares about is warmth. Turns out you, as a mammal, mm-hmm. produce warmth. So it takes over your whole body. Now, the thing is, it is ambient to itself. So it then moves you around. There are scenes in the movie where the person's alive while this is happening. Moves you around searching for more heat. Yes. (laughs) I don't need to explain anything more than to tell you how horrifying this is. The creature, these spiky growths um, that are like a mold almost, that grow over somebody very rapidly... Uh, it's just—it's terrifying. The little uh, budget they had—they spent entirely on creature effects. It's—it's—it's uh, it's, it's just a great film. I highly suggest it, But the creature is terrifyingly simple, and again, somewhat similar to the blob, terrifyingly effective.
1: Awesome.
0: All right, top three, and all three of these are very iconic. I think uh, number three being the least so is the graboids from Tremors. Mm-hmm. Giant underground worms. It's so good. Yeah. Like. I remember seeing this as a kid and being like, "I had come to the realization that like, what do you do when everyone you can just solve a, a monster issue by having a gun? Yeah. you know, there's there's oh you make the monster big so it doesn't care about guns, but we have big guns, you know, the the military and stuff. Yeah. So what do you do to make a monster so it can't just get shot? Because I was thinking of like, what about these like movies where it's just, oh it's a giant killer bear in the woods? I'm like, okay, oh, people brizzly? kill yeah. <laughs> yeah people kill bears all the time. Like how how is this a danger? And then this movie comes around it's like oh oh because it's about to get you well how's it about to get me I can't see it it's, it's in the middle of the desert no one's got oh because it's in the ground <laughs> what <laughs> it's, it makes being outside dangerous mm-hmm. which is amazing um, and I've mentioned this on other films matter of fact I begin to think this I think Trevor's is in almost all of my lists I love the duo in the film. I love the special effects. I love the the pacing. I love every aspect of it. The monster, the graboid itself, when it finally bursts, there's this giant earthworm-looking thing with this, you know, bone structure on its head to get through the ground, and it opens its maw and has the the tongue things come out. Like, that is great design, because if it was just this giant worm that bursts from the ground and ate you, okay, that's cool and all. But to have these serpentine-like tongues that come out is great. And even the... Even the cover, which I feel like a lot of horror movies' covers blow everything away with the, oh, the monster's on the cover. You see everything. If you look at a Tremors cover where they're standing on the ground and they're kind of looking like an earthquake and up comes the, the, under the ground, it's just one of the tongues. <laughs> you don't see what's really coming. So it throws you off. You don't know what's going on. And it plays into the film so greatly. Oh, yeah. All right. Number two, because it has to be on my list, Godzilla. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually like Godzilla from 1984. Now, Godzilla has gone through, for those who don't know, several redesigns. Yeah. Um, I actually am a fan of uh, later stages of Godzilla. In some stands, he's darker. He's almost black, and he has white eyes. I'm not going to get into the whole backstory of why that is. But um, I've always been a fan of, like, a really aggressive-looking Godzilla. And I love the original Gojira. But after that, the suit ended up looking a little cross-eyed, the, you know, terminology people use is derpy. Um, like, he. Because it's just how it goes, you know, and like, it doesn't work all the time to, to possess that scare, but like, the film is really good at presenting Godzilla as, as an actual threat to people. Like, he's going to wreck the whole town or city, he's going to kill a lot of people, destruction, giant traps of destruction. Mm-hmm. So he's just so good because he, as I just mentioned, how are we gonna kill him? Oh, everyone has guns. Well, it don't matter. He's too big. Yep. The iconic kaiju. Absolutely. More so than King Kong, in my opinion. Yeah. Which is why he's not on King Kong isn't on the list. I figure I only needed King Kong or Godzilla, and I had to go with had to go with my gut. Had to go with Godzilla. And number one, my favorite monster of all time, the Thing mm. from John Carpenter's The Thing. It's a remake, and it's the greatest remake of all time. Yeah. It takes the concept that was presented in the first movie, it takes the concept that was in the book, and just runs wild with it with all the abilities that um, they had at the time, bottom special effects and everything. And it's just it's amazing. You can go online right now and find hundreds of YouTube videos of people trying to break down the film and realize, okay, who's a, who's it now and who, who yeah. who's, who's infected and who's not and who, who is who they say they are and all this. And it's just, it's amazing. It's a great character study. I've actually heard it sometimes is presented in film class as a way to teach like what to tell your audience and what not to tell your audience. Yeah. It's so good. It's so good. I have heard of films being basically remakes of it that in no way are connected to it. Like people don't, a lot of people don't know this, but Quentin Tarantino's, um, not last film because he just released Hateful one. Hateful Eight. Uh, but the Hateful Eight is an actual remake of John Carpenter's The Thing. Now, you have to stop and think about it for a bit because they're not sure who everyone is. But yeah. Carpenter actually had on set the movie to make sure he wasn't stealing scenes directly. Yeah. Like he admitted, this is a remake of The Thing. So it's just, let's take out the horror element and just put in drama and suspense. Yeah. It's so good.
1: Oh, excellent. Yeah, the, Some of your choices may or may not appear on my list. <laughs> All right, for my top ten list, uh, number ten, I had uh, Marie from Innocent Blood, the French vampire, but she's a bit more of an anti-hero. Yeah. Killing yeah. off the mafia guys, but I still like the character. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see, number nine, Worm Eye from Lucho Fulci's Zombie. Uh, brief screen time, but he, he's the cover zombie. He's yeah. the one you see on the poster, and it's just one of those really awesome zombie design. Yeah, like,
0: for the longest time I actually thought they had hired a man who was missing an eye for the mm-hmm, scene, yeah. but I was informed that isn't correct. It was just an actor with a really good prosthetic.
1: Yep, uh, and uh, the use of Potter's clay, which is actually yes. pretty ingenious. Yes, very very so. Uh, number eight, uh, The Blind Dead from The Blind Dead series. Oh. Uh, these creatures, these zombie-slash-vampire-templars, they hunt by sound. Uh, numbers are a factor for this creature as well, just because so many of them can swarm you in such a short amount of time. Yeah, And just seeing them on horseback, it's like, okay, Peter Jackson clearly saw them and used them for, like, the Nazgul for yes. Lord of the Rings. I
0: will say it was pretty clear after seeing them mm-hmm. that they, mm-hmm. they had to be inspired by. Mm-hmm. I'm not as a giant fan yeah. of the Blind Dead series. Yeah. <laughs> Um, that Italian horror genre where it's just, why is it evil? Because it is, and I said yeah. so just to deal with it. Yeah. Well, what's it going to do? Whatever it wants, it's evil <laughs> get over it. I was not always really into, personally. Mm-hmm. I respect what it, what it doesn't have a great atmosphere. Um, but, yeah, like, I definitely think you're right, though. They nailed the Nazgul are definitely inspired by them. All
1: right, my number seven, The Thing, from John Carpenter's The Thing. Uh, just... The stuff of nightmares—just all these different animals and creatures, just crushed. It's it's Lovecraftian in its essence, yes, pretty
0: yes. much. You very much Lovecraftian, yes.
1: Uh, number six: The Mummy from the 1959 Hammer film starring Christopher Lee. Yes, just yes. An unstoppable force. Yes. It, it was the Terminator of its time. Yeah, 100. That mm-hmm. scene.
0: Actually, a lot of people don't know it. The scene. Uh, there's a f- scene in the film where he busts through a uh, giant pane of glass to come at. Uh, and it might surprise you Peter Cushing's in this movie. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But (laughs) he busts through the glass because he's commanded to get Peter Cushing's character. And uh, so uh, they didn't replace the glass with sugar glass. It was real glass. Which they were told they did, (laughs) but the crew just didn't get around to doing it. So Christopher Lee, not to be in any way stopped by a little thing like a giant plate glass window possibly killing him, just casually runs through it like he walks through it, like always because it's funny to me cuz when i heard that story i'm like wait he's got his arm out wouldn't he have just hit the glass realized it's not breaking nope didn't want to throw a set broke it anyway <laughs> so good
1: uh, chris rulli really is hardcore as hell man yes <laughs>
0: chris, chuck norris is, checks his bed <laughs> under night for Chris <laughs> league that's what that's the joke <laughs>
1: Uh, number five, the Deadites from the Evil Dead series. Yeah, uh, the, they're basically the trolls of the horror world, pretty much. They really are. Yeah, it's like as soon as you're about to kill one of them, they revert, they revert the person back to normal, and yep. you're like, okay, now I, like, can I kill you now, or can I not kill you now? No.
0: Yep. they're they're so fun. Looking at it, they were the, they were the Deadpool esque character, mm-hmm. not breaking the fourth wall, but kind of. Uh, of their day. And looking back, I have no idea why more films haven't used them because they're the best version of demonic zombies Mm -hmm. ever.
1: Uh, And let's see, number four, uh, The Infected from 28 Days Later. Now, technically not the first running zombies, but we're not going to get into that argument. But for me, probably some of the scariest. Oh yeah,
0: no, definitely the, the shot in the arm of the zombie... Zombies needed was definitely to make them run because that was a joke up until a lot of people don't realize before that giant wave of zombie films that we couldn't get away from in the early 2000s. Was zombies, if they were in a movie, they were a joke. People would like push them over and move on with their day. Mm -hmm. It wasn't anything. Let's have them run and be super aggressive. Oh, that's a whole different issue.
1: And the fact that these zombies work actually like just like a living virus where they will spew their blood bile at you to mm-hmm. infect you. And yep. it's like 30 seconds and then you're one of them. Yep.
0: Being around them is is, mm-hmm. is dangerous.
1: Uh, number three, uh, iconic uh, Frankenstein's monster. It's just whenever you think of Frankenstein, you always think of the Universal Character by Boris Karloff. 100%. Uh, number two, Godzilla. I mean, why not? Of course. King of the Monsters for a reason. Exactly. And number one, The Invisible Man, voiced by Claude Rains in the 1933 film The Invisible Man. Just yeah. my favorite universal monster.
0: Yeah, like, I, I uh, mine's still going to always be Frankenstein, but I definitely think uh, The Invisible Man, he brought a lot of different elements to the table, mm-hmm. the ones that uh, a lot of people didn't see, you know, parry on <laughs> them. But, like, uh, see before that. And I think that he doesn't get nearly enough credit for... Because he's also at the very end of uh, the... the, He was one
1: of the last ones before, like, the Creature from the Black
0: Lagoon. And and Creature only came later because they couldn't... There was no way to do the effects for the Creature up until that point. Because, you know, half the time it's a guy... Underwater. Or actually underwater. The suit would have killed him if it wasn't. But, like, no, the the effects they did for that were revolutionary at the time.
1: It was, like, uh, the way they did it is they had uh, Black Velvet as a backdrop the guy in costume, and then whatever parts they wanted invisible, they put in black velvet, mm-hmm. so that it's, it's basically blue screen before it's time. Yeah, yeah, and it still looks good today. Yeah, it looks
0: really good today compared yeah. to CGI and whatnot. Yeah, and that film's really old. Mm-hmm.
1: So. All right, so those are our top tens uh, for this episode of The Three Tenors. Let us know who your favorite monsters are, because there's no shortage of options here. Yeah, po- politicians aside, those are the monsters. <laughs> and- And that finishes this episode of Mac in the Movies. Thanks for listening. On Thanksgiving week, I will be dropping the 10 film review special, the five best and five worst films from director Uwe Boll. If you like this program and want to see it grow, a one-time donation to PayPal would be greatly appreciated. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Questions can be sent to my Gmail account. All that information will be in the description uh, box below. Until then, this is Mackenzie Lambert from Mac in the Movies. Take care, folks.